Greetings, Feminist Survival Project 2020 listeners. Emily here with a fun and exciting announcement. I wanted to let you all know that we have joined the Frolic Podcast Network. Frolic is a podcast community of everything romance and romance related. As you know, I am both a reader of and author of romance fiction. And Amelia, while romance is not necessarily her direct thing, is a super fan of many kinds of genre fiction. And anyone who reads and or writes romance knows the value of self-care. So we're really excited to be a part of this community. If you're into romance in any flavor, check out the other podcasts on the Frolic Network. It includes one of my very favorite podcast smart bitches trashy books which is sarah wendell's podcast about romance she's super amazing amelia and i have been on it a couple of times we love her a lot what does this mean for you about the show ah! nothing's going to change about the way we create the feminist survival project or about the way it is brought to you it just means you're going to be connected to more shows to enjoy more things to make you feel good more things to help you survive 2020 you can find new shows to add to your podcast subscriptions at frolic.media slash podcasts. Oh, here comes Thunder. Thunder wants to say hi. Thunder wants to subscribe to new podcasts. So from now on, you're going to hear an introduction on our podcast that's about, hey, we're a member of the podcast network. And at the end of it, you're going to hear another. We're part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Uh, and that's all that's going to change about it. And hopefully it's a way for us to connect with more audience members and for you, the audience, to connect with new podcasts that will make your life easier to survive in the shit show that is 2020. Thanks! Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. It's a podcast for people who feel overwhelmed and exhausted by everything they have to do and yet still worry that they are not doing enough. Here's mm. the thing. 2020 is turning out to be 140% the shit show that we anticipated yeah. when we started this podcast. It's a little worse than we it's thought. a little worse than How we thought. How can that be? Because we thought it would be so bad. War with Iran and, and a slightly deadly pandemic. How is it worse? On top of yeah. everything we knew was going to happen. God. <laughs> Apocalypse. Okay, not literally apocalypse, but damn, what a mess. So our episode today is one that we promised in a previous episode, and it is another one of those fundamental skills. It is such a fundamental skill that the reason we're doing it now is that I forgot that it's a skill. I didn't. Amelia did not. No, it's a skill that I'm still working on. And that skill is... How to listen to your body. Listening to your body. Yes. How do I know what my body needs? People ask People us. People ask us that a lot. How do I know what my body needs? And Emily was baffled by this question. Because the answer is like, your your body will tell your you. Your body will tell you. Your and body I, will tell you. I have heard sentences like that. Well, your body will tell you. Listen to your body, people told me for so long. And I just assumed that was some kind of meaningless, hippy-dippy, woo-woo, ya-ya thing. I didn't think it was like Ooh, a literal... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, it felt very false and very made up. And Lavender chiffon. And Lavender, exactly. Like, this cannot be evidence-based. There can be no science behind this. This is about feelings, and feelings aren't real. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So yeah. what's good about the way we do this is that we are genuinely, I hope it extremes. 
God, I hope so. Like, I'm sure there are people who are more intuitively aware of what their body signals are than I am. And there probably have been people who are less intuitively aware of what their body is telling them than you are. Yes. But, I mean, we're at the tails. I, oh. I think so. Yeah. Of so the bell curve. That makes it uh, good for us to be people who talk about this. So, so probably most people are somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Which is probably like a, a comfortable place to be. Yeah. So the way I was convinced that you can you can listen to your body. Your body and it will tell you. It will tell you what it needs. I didn't know that until I was in therapy and my therapist walked me through what it was like to listen to your body. She said, okay, you, so you're feeling this really intense thing. So stop and, and pay attention. Notice, tell me the physical sensations that are going on. And I could list what I was experiencing physically. And the idea that those physical experiences were a manifestation of emotional experiences. <laughs> and this is after I was at the University of Connecticut participating in the emotion research group in the psychology and communications departments shared this like interdepartmental research group about emotion. And I was in this research group. I was attending their meetings, listening to the talks of the other students writing papers. So I was starting to understand that emotions happen in the body. This was new to me. I know you think it's crazy, but the idea that emotions are physiological processes was information that I needed and <laughs> I didn't get it till I was in doctoral school. And the only reason I got it is because I was at a, a large state land grant research institution that had multiple departments doing research on emotion. And I happened to be Yeah, it was able a highly interdisciplinary yes. program yes. that you had access to. That I had access to that my my music professors had zero interest in supporting my research into emotion, even though I mean, so Ross Buck is the name of the professor who is leading this team. He wrote a book in the 80s called The Communication of Emotion. I mean, it may as well have been a conducting textbook. It was like explaining how it works when you communicate. And 80% of communication is not conscious. 20% of communication is the words we put together and the choices we make. But 80% of what we share with people is subconscious. And the idea of that, that 80% of what's going on ish is below the level of conscious awareness it was what it took for me to be convinced that maybe that 80% could be perceived by me. <laughs> My own body's 80% could be perceived by me. I was looking at communication science from a point of view of how are my singers perceiving me as a conductor and also interested in how do I perceive conductors when I'm a singer in an ensemble and the idea that you could perceive that subconscious 80% in someone else meant that you could probably perceive that subconscious 80% in yourself but how do you do that? Luckily part of my conducting training was also focused on that. There are two so there's five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, seeing, smelling, sensing, tasting, tasting. I forgot that one. Sorry. So there are those five senses. And I learned that in what the second grade is where you learn what the senses are. Something. So it, I was thought you were going to answer. I don't know. Do you remember where you learned what the no. five senses are? Because for me, that felt very concrete. There are five senses and this is how you perceive the world. And if someone claims to have perceived something that cannot be perceived through those five senses, then it's not true. Really? Yes. 
Yes. I believe the shit I learned in school. There, no, you also added on to that. Anything I can't perceive through my systems that recognize signals from the external world yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah. All these noises and things that are happening inside my body. There are no noises. There are so many signals. No, no, no. There were not any signals as far as I could tell. I didn't perceive any signals. If you asked me if I was hungry or if I had to go to the bathroom, I could not have told you. Wow. I would not have known the answer to that question. God. So the idea that you can perceive the 80% of subconscious expression that's going on from your body to the outside world, you can also perceive going on inside yourself. That was amazing to me. So the two kinds of <laughs> it's ways... It's called interoception. It's called interoception. For people who want to Google it. For people who want to Google it, that awareness of what's going on inside your body. But there's another kind of internal perception that's called proprioception. Yeah. Which is about the placement Foster. of your body in the world and your your movement relative to the space that you're in. And conducting is very much about learning that, explicitly noticing where is your balance right now? Where is your center of gravity? How high are your hands? How low are your hands? How much weight is in your gesture? How much there's a kind of... Uh, it's called weight, but it's not necessarily about just how heavy your arms feel, but how much resistance you put in a gesture. So if you move your hand through air, it's really easy. If you move your hand through water, it's really hard. But you can make your hand move through air as though it's moving through water, right? Yes, very easily. That's a thing that conductors learn to do purposefully you and intentionally. Use the same, you imagine what it would feel like to push through water. Right. And you use the same muscle tension. Exactly. That's a thing that conductors are trained to do very specifically because to do it kind of in an imaginary way is easy, mm -hmm. but to do it in a way that's intentional, that influences an ensemble in a specific way, takes some training. But the fact that I got training in proprioception in my conducting training was really helpful for me because the next step after proprioception, understanding the movement of your body and the placement of your body in the world is looking at a little deeper the signals that are coming from inside your body because your sense of where you are in the world comes from inside you. When you're thinking about like the weight of a gesture and you're moving your arm, you're thinking about moving it through water, are you just thinking about the physical motion or are you feeling the tension in the muscle of your arm? I did not understand how to do this. People said, well, imagine moving your arm through water. And I was like, but how is that happening? And I kind of didn't believe it was possible for my imagination to control my arm in that way. It was very hard for me. So another thing that really helped me learn this was a book called Singing Redefined by Walter Foster. It's a, it's a vocal pedagogy book. It's out of print now, but it is focused on using singers' imagination to teach them how to sing better. That if I sing, Ooh, ah, then I've mechanically produced those vowels and sung those pitches. But then if I tell a singer who's learning using that exercise, imagine that you've just seen an amazing fireworks display. Ooh, ah, it sounds really different. Both the technique is different and the resonance becomes different. But the way that that change occurs is not because the singer made conscious choices to make that change, but because your imagination, which is part of part of your consciousness, part of your subconsciousness, coordinates to change what your physical body does and is perceived externally. Yeah. Yeah, that was news to me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Look, it's going to be news to a lot of people. How I'm not are you the not only dead? One. I don't know. 
Well, I have a sister with a PhD in public health who brought me a lot of books. When I was on the verge of death, there was a turning point. And you were willing and to I be learned. persuaded by... Yeah. I was willing to be persuaded because I value... The thing is that, ironically, my the value I placed on intellectual understanding was impeding my ability to understand this subconscious yeah. communication. But my ability to be persuaded by logical external evidence allowed me to learn to listen to my body. Okay, it's... Okay, so here's the thing I was thinking of how to explain it, that listening to your body is like learning a language. But I first had to be convinced that that language existed, that there was someone in the world who spoke that language and that I could communicate with them and that I could learn how to process that communication. So in French, when you want to say, greet someone and say hello, you say bonjour. Do you know how to say that? Bonjour. Right. So if you want to meet someone in Russia, do you believe that there are people in Russia who speak Russian? Yes. Yes. If you want to, okay, so. Well, you can't say that to me because I've been to Russia. Yeah. But so it doesn't matter because I live in a body and I know. Oh, okay. You know? Yep, yep. Yeah. Yep. That's a, yep. Yeah. I know. I've been to Russia. I've been to Russia. I live in a body. And there are people. Now, I'm going to teach you how to say hello in Russian, just like bonjour in French. Oh, fuck. It's dobry dien. Go ahead. Dobry dien. That's pretty good. Yeah. Great. Now that I that's, thought it was zdravstvite. Zdravstvite is hello. Dobry dien is, is good day. Oh. Zdravstvite is hello. It's what you say on the phone and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it works just fine. But dobry dien is the parallel They're to both French bonjour. They're both very hard to say. They're both quite difficult to say. Now... And if I asked you again in 10 minutes without referring to it again, could you remember that? Could you do it again? Unfortunately, I can because it's included in a song from the Animaniacs. <laughs> okay. Well, good. okay, good. So you've learned it in other circumstances and that's how you pick it up. Right. But if I ask... And now Olive has a piece of mail. So I'm going to take that back. So even after this small delay, people who are listening to the podcast, do you remember how to say good day in Russian? Yeah. You might or you might not. Dorizin. Emily remembers. The idea being that I was learning to communicate with my body, but first I had to learn that there was a language. Russia is to a country. Speak. Russia is a country. There people are people speak there a language who there. speak a language. Exactly. So I had to learn that first. And then I had to Let us also learn say for the, the record that uh, Amelia chose Russian because she speaks some she took Russian in high school. Right. And I've, I've spent so, a lot of time... If you're like, why are they talking about Russian? Is, yeah. Amelia actually wrote her dissertation. On Rachmaninoff. So... On, and, like, was focused mostly on... It's a coincidence. How to pronounce Russian. The overlap that it has with the shit show of 2020. That's, yes, that's a coincidence. Well, except... Yeah. Anyway. Which, is your body the enemy, though? <laughs> no. No, that, yeah. That, I did not intend that to be part of the parallel at all. Actually, when I started studying Russian in high school, it was right after the coup. Right. And for a hot second, Russia was going to be a democratic nation. And I was I was into it. And I was ready to like learn a special thing that the world was changing. And I was on board with this new thing. And I learned Russian. And then, and then. Yeah. Hmm, yeah. So, yeah. So just a coincidence, your body's not the enemy. Your body is Russia after the coup. Like there's hope and there's potential. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Your dog analogy was good. The dog analogy was better. Communicating your body is kind of like communicating with a puppy. Say you get a new puppy. You have to learn how that puppy tells you, 
I have to go outside. I need to pee. There's going to be a time when she doesn't even know she has to pee. And that means that she has to go outside. And then she'll learn, oh, right, I'm supposed to pee outside. And she'll learn how to ask you to tell you, hey, I need to go outside. And you learn that with her, how to understand her. It's a two-way communication process. She learns she's got to do the thing. She learns how to tell you. You learn how to understand. And you work that out kind of cooperatively. Now, I'm wrong. I don't know why I knew Dobrydian because in the... In the Animaniac song, yeah, <laughs> they say Uhani Gani Swahili is the tongue. In Russian, it's Strasvucha, which sounds way better sung. And they do it that way where they're like, I don't yeah. want to say this. It's just so Strasvucha is what they have in the song. So I don't know where I got Dobrydin. It might have been in the recordings you were listening to when you're preparing to go to Russia. Dobrydin, it's very, know. it's like a thing you learn. Like you're learning, Bon dia, buenos dias. It doesn't Bonjour. <laughs> Guten Tag. Okay. I had a dog long before Emily had a dog as an adult. So way back in like, I think it was 2004, mm -hmm. I was living in New Jersey with my uh, 60 pound coonhound mix and Emily came to visit me in New Jersey and I took the dog to go play frisbee and I told her, buddy likes to catch the frisbee. And she looked at me like I was, I don't know. How like you were anthropomorphizing. Like, yeah. She had disdain for the fact that I believed that Buddy enjoyed a thing and could communicate to me that he enjoyed the thing. I didn't I didn't understand dogs. He she did not understand. But Buddy definitely so I corrected and said he tries to catch the frisbee. He which he definitely objectively you could see that he was trying to catch the frisbee. For the record, Buddy likes catch frisbee. <laughs> Buddy likes to catch frisbee. He liked it. Frisbee. He thought it was, it was like he enjoyed his it. favorite thing. And if you throw it in a way that he cannot catch it, he gets kind of frustrated and a little bit bored. Because Emily had thrown the frisbee. She's like, I'm going to throw it really far. So he has to run for it. And I was like, no, he likes he to catch it. He didn't like it as much. He likes he, to play. He likes to catch the game. it. I didn't understand. He wanted, he likes to play. And you can see. And I was breaking the rules you, by throwing it really far. You can see that he enjoyed it. And I could not have explained in words how I could tell that he was enjoying it. But I knew because he'd been my dog for like a year and a half at that point, And I knew when he was having fun versus when he was frustrated. I knew I could tell. I can't tell you how I could tell. I just knew. And how you learn the language of your dog is how you learn the language of your body. But first, you have to believe that your body exists and can tell you things mm -hmm. and that you have the capacity to understand. So how you learn to communicate with what your body needs and listen to it is the same way you learn a language. Slow, repetitive practice. It makes so much sense to me now that the way people very, like if they really struggle the way you do, a lot of the way that people often begin is with something like yoga. Because the thing is, when you've got a dog, it is forced on your attention. Here is this physical being in front of you. Who's going to make a mess on your carpets unless, unless you, you try learn the situation. You, yeah. You have to go out of your way to do this or there will be intensely negative consequences for you. And as your own experience tells you, it is so easy to like not have your attention forced to your body. Yeah. But if you're doing yoga, your body has to like you're like oh my body there's all these things happening in my body i'm putting my body in postures relative to the floor that it has never been in before and this is so weird there's so much happening in my body and it teaches people to pay attention i think that's a nice assumption to make about the people in the middle ground or maybe it's only the people who are on your side of the bell curve because i practice yoga and i never once received any signals from my body 
that were like, hey, here's information for you. I just did yoga because I was like... It must be middle ground people then. It must be middle Because I hear that story over and over. Okay, great. People have sent me their like memoirs of sexual awakening. And it's nearly always I started taking yoga and I connected to my body for the first time. Yeah. For me, when I started practicing Tai Chi, I took Tai Chi lessons for months. And I... I enjoyed Tai Chi, but I didn't really learn how Tai Chi could benefit me until I took a training course in how to be a Tai Chi leader, where it was explained out loud in words what Tai Chi actually does and how to think about it. Because all the Tai Chi lessons are basically like, here, do this movement, here, do this movement. And that was not enough for me. I needed the philosophical framework to understand it's not just about where your feet are and what your hands do. It's about the fact that your hands are an extension of the earth, that you are a continuation of the powers of the universe, which sounds so rooty tooty fresh and fruity that (laughs) (laughs) I know that 21 year old me would never have believed that that was a thing to think about. It's 21 year old you would have walked out. Yeah, would have been like, I'm turning off this podcast right now. Because that just sounds like something someone made up and doesn't have any evidence behind it. But there's actually a lot of evidence now about mindfulness-based techniques that increase people's... So actually, this kind of increasing your interoception. Interoception is not just your awareness of your place and movement in the space that you're in, but also the actual signals from inside your body. And there's a lot of research now about how when you improve someone's interoception, their ability to perceive the signals in their body, it improves their emotion regulation and overall the cohesiveness of their personality and their comfort with being a person in the world. Oh my God, she's like a little bunny rabbit. She's clearly very excited. I don't know, but she's doing that like bouncing on all of her paws at the same time thing. Yeah. Like Pepe Le Pew. Yeah. Anyway. So having your attention forced was not enough. You were moving your body in the gestures and postures. And then somebody was like, no, but here's what you're supposed to be thinking about. There, there's a whole philosophy. There's actually oh, research. That's so interesting. No, it's, I mean, yes, there's a whole philosophy and there's research, but... They told you the why. They told you the story that goes in your mind while you are. Yeah. And the same thing happened with your exercise. Physical activity on a regular basis did nothing for you. Nothing. But when you added a story to it, when you added your Godzilla stomping. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on the elliptical machine, but what I'm really doing is I'm smashing the University of Connecticut. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Whereas for me, all I had to do was move my body and I could feel the feelings running their course. Yep. And I sort of had this intuition by the time I was 19 yeah. that uh, like, if I just let my body do what it needs, I'll get rebalanced. I didn't even notice I was off balance and needed to be rebalanced. <laughs> that's how I ended up in the hospital. No, yeah. I, yeah. That's Because I wasn't even noticing. That's why we're talking about this. So there's a country called Russia and people there speak Russian. <laughs> you have a body and it needs things and it can tell you what it needs. And it's so good for you if you can learn to speak this language and to listen to it. And unfortunately, the only way to do it is to practice slowly over and over again. And if you don't believe us that there is a country called Russia where they speak Russian or that you have a body that is trying to communicate with you, the only way for us to convince you is for you to do it and see what happens. Yes. So I made a list of evidence-based strategies that people use to do this. 
And you can think, I've got three major strategies and you can think of them each as having path A and path B. This is a language that I'm taking from Peggy Kleinplatz's research on optimal sexual experiences, actually. She asks people who have extraordinary sex lives, so how did you get there? And she found that very broadly speaking, there's kind of two paths. Some people go from understanding themselves to building deeper connection with others. And some people go from feeling a deeper connection with others to a deeper connection with themselves. And I think uh, connection with your own internal experience can actually work in both of those directions also. Mm -hmm. For some people, it's going to come very much from, for me, it starts very much inside me. And then I communicate that out to other people. But I know for sure that there are some people who really need someone else there to mirror and reflect and guide. Yeah. Um, for me, that's exactly what conducting a choir is like. The choir is showing me what I am showing them. They are informing me what was in me all along that's pouring out on top of them. Yeah. And they're saying, hey, this is what I'm getting. And horseback riding accomplishes the same thing. So does having a dog. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, being married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's a verbal processing. Talk therapy is the like reflection version of this, where you put your stuff out and you have somebody guide you to, but what are your physical internal experiences right now? Um, and the verbal alone version of this is journaling, which I find highly productive. Like I can just sit and stream of consciousness, write really fluidly. I've done daily pages, the artist way practice of writing three pages you just sit down and like pour out the gunk to clean out the system before you get started with your day so journaling is a verbal way to process from the inside out and uh therapy talk therapy is a way to process from the outside in i love that those are both highly verbal because for me understanding that your body tells you things and you should listen to your body those were really meaningless verbs to me because they're about other kinds of senses and other ways of communication. And the fact that the telling and the saying and the listening could be a kind of metaphorical. Because, I mean, you have five senses. And then there's these other senses. And the way, it's not really listening because it doesn't happen with your ears. And it's not feeling because it doesn't happen with your skin exactly. I just found the language very complicated. So when, when I could make it verbal with therapy and with journaling and I could make it I trained my body to communicate with me in words so that now sometimes I just get the information when I stop and reflect and I try to pay attention sometimes it just comes as words which is so convenient <laughs> oh my god okay which brings us to the kinetic way and I kind of feel like like we just said, people who can process this kinetically maybe don't need this episode because that's me. I'm a person like I just literally like think about my stomach. I just turn my attention toward that part of me where the discomfort lives and it will just tell me like it just like if I'm if I one of the reasons yoga is so powerful for me as a practice is that the more I practice moving my body, the more I feel each day how my body's response to those movements is different, which will tell me how I am different. But that requires you, A, to know that your body has discomfort, B, to know where this discomfort is, C, to understand that you can communicate with the discomfort and get something valuable out of it. Those are three things that cannot be taken for granted. And if you are someone like Emily, to whom this comes easily, hey, here's information for you. 
Not everybody does. Or if you hear Amelia's story and you're like, I might not be Emily, but I'm not Amelia. Yoga. Yeah. Kinetic strategies. Some people prefer to be alone. Some people, it helps them a lot to be in a room of other people. Mm -hmm. Literally seeing other people's bodies and gestures Mm -hmm. can help you understand what's happening in your own body. Oh, yes. So taking a class is a really valuable thing to do. Yeah. Can I also say singing lessons work the same way? Yeah. Singing lessons, if you're... If your singing teacher is worth anything, worth anything, is going to be like that. Yeah. Can I also say, I know you're going to roll your eyes, but improv classes. Yeah. If, you, if you're doing it well, you are learning a lot about your own internal experience while you're participating in that game with other people. Yeah, because what comes pouring out of you when you're not prepared is real. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we've got our first, we've got verbal by yourself or with others. We've got kinetic body-based, by yourself or with others. And then the third is any form of meditation or visualization, which can take a whole lot of different forms. So it can be a literal body scan where you lie still in a quiet space and you think about your actual literal toes. You turn your attention toward, like you turn your internal sight to your toes. You feel the space your toes take up and you just notice your toes for a while. And then you, like, with an in-breath, you uh, release your toes. And with as you exhale, you... No, as you exhale, you release your toes. And as you inhale, you turn your attention to the balls of your feet. And then the arches of your feet. And then the heels of your feet. And then your insteps and your ankles and your calves. And, like, gradually you move up your body, breathing in a calm, relaxed way. Scanning your body, just noticing how each of your parts is. How, how would that have been for you? I... I did learn how to do that early in life, and I never found it valuable ever. Never, not once. Probably because you didn't have the story. I didn't have the story. I didn't have any... You weren't looking for something specific. I really believe that anyone who believed that their body was telling them things was imagining it, was making it up. In the same way that I... So it's part of a one tradition in science to believe that attributing emotions to any non-human animal is anthropomorphizing and not accurate. So you treated your body like mm-hmm. that branch of science treats animals. Mm-hmm. Like you can't assign any... Dogs don't like catching frisbees. Yeah. You can't tell if they enjoy something. Dogs don't even have the capacity for pleasure. So here's where that came from for me and why they're not incompatible. When we were living in the same house in undergrad, I had just gotten Sugar, my cat. Yeah. And I had gotten her a toy mouse and I threw it across the room. And you seemed to believe that she believed it was a real mouse and she was chasing a mouse. And then I was like, I have a degree in cognitive science. I can tell you that she's perceiving (laughs) like a small rodent shaped thing that she's hardwired to perceive it is moving in a in a way that resembles the way a thing moves that she predates and so it's engaging her hunting instinct sure she doesn't see a mouse yeah she just sees an object moving in a way that rings a bell that she was born with but if it looks like a mouse and it walks like a mouse is it like if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck yeah isn't it just a fucking duck so well For me, it's, I, when I think about the signals that come from my body, I don't have a mystical relationship with my body. Like, I don't feel like I'm part of the earth and blah, blah, blah. Like, I know that my stress response activates 
inflammatory responses, which result in my digestion getting fucked up in predictable ways. And so if I listen to my body, it will tell me, here's the way your digestion is fucked up right now. And from that, I have this very deep intuitive sense that like that sort of fucked up internal experience is inflammation caused by stress. To me, the connection to the earth, that you are an extension of the earth, is not philosophical because it's just literally true. It's just a larger scale view. We are all directly descended from the forces of gravity and motion and the same molecules that existed. We're all made of where this planet came from four and a half billion years ago. We wouldn't exist if those molecules didn't exist. We're made of the same ones. It doesn't feel mystical or philosophical to me. It feels very literally true. So in science, this is called a proximate, proximal versus ultimate explanatory mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't need to go all the way back to the origins of the universe to know what my body is in. You need to go back to the origin of the universe. <laughs> yes. Like, here is the deep ultimate. I really did have to have it explained to me that... I'm not just a mind behind Here is the a pair universe. of eyes. Here you are in it. Here's where you came from relative to the universe. Oh my God, I'm in the universe? Are you kidding me? That's amazing. Yeah, that was news to me. It was helpful for me. So body scans didn't work for you because you didn't know you existed. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus God. And if I existed, <laughs> I definitely didn't think that anything in me was of any particular value or, you know merit or even just reality yeah okay meditation body scan uh meditation visualizations so you this is where you get more sort of like story based and it's less literal you're not looking you're not turning your attention toward your body you're turning your attention toward the mental representation of your body and so it's not going to come to you as your organs or as a physical sensation but as it'll be a color It'll be a shape. There might be sounds that go with it, but there'll be, it's, it's not just like here. Or a sensation words. like lightness or darkness or thickness. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like a so color. One of the examples a, yeah. from you is when you had the sort of grill. Yes. I was imagining my subconscious, my mind, my interior state as being the interior of a grill for cooking that it was caked and clotted with now you had not like been like i know charcoal. what i'll do let me imagine my insides no. as this like i was having a i was doing a body scan i think and i just got this image of being on the inside of a grill that me my mind was living on the inside of a shell that was coated in Gunk. char and grease and yuck yeah and then what'd you do with that i imagined scraping the gunk off yeah yeah and that's I what went, you do yeah because your body and brain work in metaphors yeah like metaphors are how we think stories are how we think. So it's this, this is another place where it sounds super woo woo. Yeah. 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 What was the other thing you said? Hippy dippy. Yeah. The other Rudy tooty fresh and fruity. Rudy tooty fresh and fruity. Sounded roll. <laughs> Rudy to, to say that like your body and brain work with the metaphor and the story. Yeah. But this is actually how our brains are structured to process information. Yeah. From the top down, we overlay a story, we overlay an image, and then we work with that So structure. top down means from conscious awareness into oh, the right. lower levels of consciousness. Whereas a bottom up process works, it starts with probably the body 
the information from the subconscious directly. Right. And different forms of therapy take different approaches. So cognitive behavioral therapy begins with your thoughts, yeah. restructures your thoughts and your behavior and your internal experience shift to adapt to the new thoughts. Right. Whereas bottom up, you go with your body, you process your emotions mm-hmm. and your cognitions and external storytelling adapt in response to the changes in your body as a result of the emotion processing. Yeah. For the record, a mus- musical training works the same way, in particular vocal training, but also conducting training. Works in which way? The, the combination of the two. Like yeah. you do some top down and you do some bottom up. And let me just say that mindfulness is uh, sideways. It's not top down, not bottom up. It is stepping to one side mm-hmm. of the whole thing. And observing. And observing it in a neutral way. Mm-hmm. It's like sitting quietly and watching a... Uh, John Kabat-Zinn talks about like watching a forest creature come out into a patch of sunlight to forage. Aww. Your job is to sit really still and observe your own internal experience in a peaceful way that doesn't disturb it. Oh, and hey, by the way, your internal experience is real. Yeah. And it matters. Which brings us to the last of our strategies for how to listen to your body, which is to kind of as literally as we get, listen to it. There is a form of therapy called internal family systems, Mm -hmm. Um, There's a book called Self-Therapy, which I found really valuable in understanding how this works. Basically, oh God, I'm going to use the phrase inner child. (laughs) You have some. I had a lot. I still have a lot. Um, Parts of you is the metaphor. Parts of you with unmet needs that it's still holding on to. Parts of you that are trying to protect you. That is so Rudy to me. But it is actually, so I know, I know. I've done it too. So let me talk about why it is a perfectly reasonable thing to imagine. When you were a child, you had to adapt to suboptimal situations. And the way a child adapts to a suboptimal situation is probably going to be a suboptimal adaptation. But you carry that behavior pattern into your adulthood And will that suboptimal adaptive behavior that you chose still work for you when you're an adult? Maybe not. Maybe it's an opportunity when you discover this to find a different, more adaptive way to cope with the suboptimal situations that you find yourself in. Uh, So, for example, people with avoidance attachment cope with the reality that their adult caregivers are not reliably there for them when they need them by never attaching to any specific individual, but by spreading their attachment out a little bit to a lot of different people. And they might find themselves feeling really lonely and isolated in adulthood and struggling to feel connected. And that's a place where you can go back and imagine, like, at what age were you when you sort of started practicing or you can remember using the strategy of, like, not investing emotionally too much in any specific other, but instead spread your investment out. Imagine a time as a child when you were using the strategy of only connecting a little bit with a variety of people, especially a moment when you pulled back from a relationship where someone was moving closer to you to like be kind and connected, but your body was like, hell no, that's too close. So you go and you sort of imagine that kid and you have a conversation with her. You say, hey, tell me all about it. Tell me what you needed in that moment. Tell me what you were missing. Tell me what I can do for you now. Because here's the thing, inner child. 
four years old, six years old, 12 years old, whatever age you are, I'm a grown up now and I can actually meet my needs and I can protect myself from relationships that aren't reliable and I can trust the people around me and connect with people more deeply than you inner child believe that I can. How can I help you to let go of your fear so that we together can build deeper emotional relationships? That is the inner child work. And then you listen to the answer because she'll tell you if you're willing to allow yourself to sit quietly and listen to this inner child, she'll tell you about like the fears that she has and where they came from and her dread about what's going to happen if you dare to trust other people or whatever your inner injury is. God knows we all have plenty of them. Mm -hmm. And again, this sounds so hippy dippy. Yo. But again, like you literally did as a child, build adaptive strategies that were suboptimal and don't work for you in your adult life. So you're just addressing the pattern and all you're doing is anthropomorphizing the pattern of behavior because how our brains work is in stories, is in narrative, metaphor, character. And there's one other possible way to notice these communications that are coming from deep in your subconscious. And that is with your responses to the art and entertainment that you consume. Mm -hmm. If you're not great at stopping and just like receiving information that's received from some spontaneous moment of choice, then when you are overwhelmed with an emotional response to a movie, to a book, to a story of any kind, to um, a painting that you stand in front of and you don't know why, but it just like hits you, that moment of overwhelm, of intense response, is a chance for you to not just enjoy that experience, which it is a lot enjoyable for a lot of us, uh, but to turn toward it and say, hey, where are you coming from? Mm -hmm. How come you? Yeah, key is noticing you have a feeling and then turning toward it feeling fucking kindness and compassion again. Hello, feeling. God damn it. What's that? What's going on with that, feelings? And you turn toward it the way, as your best self, you would turn toward a child who's having that emotion. Yeah. Kindness and compassion, patience and a willingness to listen. Knowing that what you hear may or may not be, like, rational, but recognizing that it's real. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be, like, logical to be a really deep emotional truth. Yeah. There's a country called Russia, and people who live there speak Russian. And that's real, and it's not their fault, and it's perfectly normal for them to have learned to speak Russian while they're living in Russia. (laughs) Do you remember how to say good day in Russian? That's goodbye. See you later. Okay. Oh, maybe that's Dobry Dien. Dobry Dien. Very good. I wonder if if other people were like, yeah. Dobry Dien. I remembered it. So the way to remember things is spaced spaced repetition. repetition. Yeah. We had this biology teacher in the 10th grade. Hi, Mr. Twilly. He died a few years ago, actually. So we're saying hi to the universe. Yeah. Mr. Twilly was a biology teacher who believed in spaced repetition and he had us chant things and repeat things and it was a really effective way i to this day remember all the parts of the digestive system mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly so when she says spaced repetition she's referring to mr twilly another way that people learn things is when they are set to music and there's something way more compelling about hearing something set to music than just hearing somebody sit there and talk about it so this is the first ever song that i wrote emily wrote this obviously that means that I did not write a tune. <laughs> yeah, it's the tune of Sweet Betsy from Pike. Sweet Betsy from Pike, which, which is, is a song from our childhood. Folk song that we've known our whole lives. Yeah. Okay, so I will perform it even though you wrote it. Here it goes. You and your body are one 
been the same. But here's a cute shortcut your health to reclaim. Imagine your body is you as a child and ask her what needs she has unreconciled. Okay, let's Should we do it again? Yeah. No. No? So this is just me pointing out. Here is why I will just sing this one verse and we will understand why Amelia does the singing. You and your body are one and the same, but here's a cute shortcut your health to reclaim. Imagine your body is you as a child and ask her what needs she has unreconciled. Jesus Christ! That was not very convincing that you're not a good enough Just singer like to be singing on the Just like compared to Amelia singing, please send us an email. <laughs> Commenting because I was trying to convince Emily that since never she let wrote Amelia, it, she should sing it. Never let Emily sing she's again. She's a perfectly good singer. Yes, no, and I bet there were a lot of people who couldn't even tell that was you. Anyway, here's the chorus. I will do a little bit of harmony on this because it's a song we've known for 700 years. Therefore, I can do a little bit of harmony on the chorus. All right, bring it on. Your body will tell you your body is smart. Your body is waiting to show you her heart. Your body will tell you your body will sing. Your body has magic to something. And no, things. I had other versions of the chorus that had that were no, finished. No, I chose different. this one because I chose this one because <laughs> it just ends with something and thing because that's what writers do to like fill in. But a, it rhymed, and b. That's what it feels like when you're communicating. Like there's something that comes at you and you're like, I don't know what that is, but I can sort of intuit my way to it. And something, something, and thing, I left it that way because I thought it was correct. Uh, so Rich, leave all of this as it is. <laughs> okay. This so, is what happens when Emily writes the song. When you started singing the harmony part, I got distracted and I played the chords wrong. So sorry about that. Just leave it. Okay. So we'll, should we do the next verse? You go ahead. Okay. If you're still and quiet, she won't have to shout. She'll sit in your lap and just whisper needs out. But maybe she's Elsa, and once she lets go, she'll leave your whole inner world covered with snow. Blasted with snow. <laughs> your body will tell you your body is smart. Your body is waiting to show you her heart. Oh, that was so bad. Oh my God. Why did I do that? I, the thing is, like, never mind. Should we just do it again, or do you want to? Yeah, going? let's start. Let's, let's start the chorus again. Okay. And I'm just gonna so sing. So we're just gonna cut that out. And I'm just gonna sing the melody, and okay. you can you can do whatever you want. Okay. Your body will tell you your body is smart. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> Rich, don't cut any of it. Just leave this exactly the mess that it is, because this is what it's actually like to be related to a musician. Fuck you. I'm a doctor in music. I can't improvise a harmony to a folk song. Come that you on know now. your literal whole no, life. No, exactly. That I have the chords written out in front of me. All right. Okay, here's the secret that I learned from Alice Parker about how to sing a harmony line. You pick one note and you sing it until it doesn't sound good anymore. And then you pick another <laughs> note. Oh, and here's Olive. Let me Sorry, go. Excited Shut the door. Olive all jazzed. All right. <laughs> Should we do the chorus again? We'll do the chorus again. Jeez. I'll just sing the melody. It's gonna bother no, you. No, I'll sing the melody and you can be good. <laughs> Ready? Your body will tell you 
body is smart. Your body is waiting to show you her heart. Your body will tell you. Your body will sing. Your body has magic of something and thing. You might not believe her, you might think she's nuts. Maybe you won't even like her that much. But she's like Hermione, raising her hand, just waiting to tell you what she understands. Your body will tell you your body is smart. Your body is waiting to show you her heart. Your body will tell you your body will sing. Your body has magic and something and thing. <laughs> And that's this week's episode of the Feminist Survival Project. It might turn out to be one of our longest yet, but it's a really important skill. If it was written, it was written by us, I'm Emily Nagoski. And Amelia Nagoski. If it was edited, it was edited by my marital euphemism, who's going to have a fun time with this one. Sorry, Rich. And music, this time, was a folk song and me. Yeah. The non-musician. I'm the one who decided on the sixth chord. If you are... Either extreme, like Amelia, in not even believing that feelings exist, uh -huh. or extreme like me, where since for as long as you can remember, you've been connected to your body and allowed it to do what it needs, let us know. Yeah. If you are somewhere in between and something other than yoga has been the thing that has connected you to your body, let us know that. Feminist Survival Project at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. The email form is on our website, mm -hmm. feministsurvivalproject.com. Mm -hmm. And we're also on Instagram and Twitter at FSP2020. And here is a new and exciting thing. The Feminist Survival Project is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. That's awesome. We're official. Woohoo! Oh my god, I'm in the universe? Are you kidding me? That's amazing. Yeah, that was news to me. <laughs>